Lord Jesus, we rejoice in your good shepherding. We rejoice that we who were lost and scattered, you have come and found. Now, Lord Christ, we come again into your presence at your invitation, asking for more of your grace. Be merciful to us, we pray. Pour out even more of your spirit upon us. Give us ears to hear you speak and call us by name. That we might be changed into your very image. For the glory of your name. Lord, in your mercy. Hear our prayer. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we come to a shift today in our Easter season, 50 days of Easter. Every year we come, uh, and for the first three weeks, uh, we celebrate the resurrection. Uh, because truly, this is the event in cosmic history that is worthy to be celebrated. And so for the three weeks, the first three weeks of the Easter season, we always have one of the resurrection appearance stories. We come back and we are with those disciples as they encounter yet again incredibly, um, unexpectedly, graciously, this risen one in their midst. That's what we do in those first three weeks, and then we shift. We shift into a different way of being. We shift uh, into learning how to live in and within the resurrection, how to actually walk in a way worthy of this risen one. Uh, and so that's where we make the shift. And it's not simply because we run out of resurrection appearance stories, which we do, but it's because that's what it's all about. He is risen so that we might join him in his new creation and that we might fulfill our part within it. That's what Easter is all about. That's what the resurrection is all about. And so we shift now. And we make that shift uh, in the lectionary now. And that's the reason. And as I pondered that shift this week, and as I was reading these texts, and they're glorious texts, uh, I found myself looking at some of the factors which prevent us from making that shift. Two texts especially, and I'm going to almost risk doing a double sermon today, and I, I will put it into the same amount of time, I, I guarantee it. But the Acts shows us something about the external forces at play that impact our living into the resurrection. And the epistle, 1 John, talks a little bit about the internal factors which are at play that keeps us from living into the resurrection. And so I want to look briefly, I mean very briefly, at both of these texts today. 
Uh, Acts 4, if you want to look at it, uh, is the ending, uh, the end of chapter 4, is the ending of a really quite long story that began, began in chapter 3, verse 1. Uh, it's one of those uh, no good deed goes unpunished kind of story. All right? Remember where it happens. Acts chapter 3. Uh, Peter and John are heading into the temple to pray, and they encounter the man lame from birth. Forty years he had been dragged day by day, Monday or Sunday through Friday to the steps of the, of the temple at the gate called Beautiful in order to beg for his living. And he does that when Peter and John pass by, and they, of course, say, we have no silver or gold, but such as we have, we give to you. Stand up in the name of Jesus Christ. And he does. He goes leaping and walking and jumping into the temple, praising God. And as you can imagine, it gathers a crowd. A miracle tends to do that. And the crowd is flummoxed, and they go, as all the crowds in Acts do, what does this mean? How can this be? Is this really the guy? And that gives Peter the chance again to preach yet one more sermon in explanation of what has just happened. And he says, yeah, this is all about Jesus. This is Jesus still at work in our life. Because the God of Israel overturned the judgment of Israel concerning this one. You crucified him. God raised him. And now he is active, pouring out the blessing of the resurrection upon his people as evidenced by this man standing before you. And then he says, but I know you acted in ignorance. And now is your chance to come inside. Repent and join us in this new world that has been birthed. There's the sermon that he preached. But we read in um, verse 26 uh, that he was not alone. Verse, well, sorry, verse 1 uh, of chapter 4. Uh, As he was preaching, the priests and the captain of the temple and the Sadducees came upon them greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The Pharisees at least believed that, the, that they were waiting for the resurrection of the dead, but it would be a corporate resurrection, a cosmic resurrection, and not that it would happen with one waiting for the rest. But they were annoyed with that, ticked. And so they arrested them and put them in prison overnight. And then the Sanhedrin gathered the very next day, the very same group that had gathered on Monday, Thursday, to condemn Jesus and hand him over to Pontius Pilate to be crucified. The very same group came in all its pomp and circumstance uh, and placed these two uneducated fishermen in their midst, intimidation on steroids, and demanded to know, he says, by what power or by what name did you do this? And Peter unabashedly says, Is that what you want to know? Let me tell you. He says, by the name of Jesus the Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this man, 
By him, this man is standing before you well. What a glorious thing. And the Sanhedrin, of course, is flummoxed. They can see this man. They know that he's been healed. And they can't do anything about it. But because, because they know him to be and are unable to refute it, and because they are unwilling to repent of it, compel the apostles to silence. They commanded them not to speak or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. Now, here is where the pressure comes. These are the authorities in Israel. And they are saying to these two uneducated guys, we know who you are. We know where you live. And we know how to deal with people like you. Remember what happened to Jesus? It's going to happen again. That's what they're saying. But notice what they are doing. Because they are unable to refute what has happened, unable, unwilling to repent of it, they say, you can believe this, but you have to be private about it. No more public speaking. That's what happens with the principalities and powers who do not want to hear about the good news of the gospel. You can believe what you believe in your private homes. Don't dare speak about it in public. That's the pressure. And you and I know something about that pressure in our own day. Believe what you want to believe, but shut up about it in public. It has no place in our society any longer. You cannot speak this language. So there is the external forces of an unwilling institutional principality and power to believe the good news that is being proclaimed to them. Silence. So how do they deal with that dilemma? How do they come out of that dilemma on the other side? Well, Luke says they went home and they prayed. That's how they dealt with it. They went home and they prayed with the church. But again, notice to whom they prayed and for what they prayed. I found this really quite lovely and remarkable. Here's the beginning of the prayer. Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything within them. Now, I don't know about you, but when I start to pray, my most natural inclination is to pray about the graciousness of God, the love of God that comes through the cross of Jesus Christ. That's where most of us who were growing up in the Protestant faith start. That's not where the Jewish Christians start. They go back to the God of creation. They go back 
to the sovereign and powerful one who created all things from the very beginning. They go back to the one who formed them in his image. They go back to him and go, sovereign Lord, you who are powerful, and yes, the one who is gracious and loving towards his creation, they know him to be gracious and loving, but they go back to his sovereignty and his power. That's where they begin. That's where they begin. And the church needs to recover that aspect. This is the God to whom we pray. It is the creator God who shows up in the flesh and dies on the cross. Sovereign Lord. And then look for what they pray. He says, after they ground their uh, request in David's words of Psalm 2, uh, looking again, they found within Israel's story uh, the, the rationale to what has just happened in the history of Jesus, this cross. They say, well, Herod and uh, Pilate were mentioned by David in Psalm 2. We get it now. We see it. It's there. They were raging against this one, and they got rid of him. And they come back to say, all right, here is the situation. Here's what we need from you, sovereign Lord. And it's one simple request. Look upon their threats. That's it. That's all they ask of God in terms of their circumstances. We have just been threatened with future death. Look upon their threats. Don't do something about their threats, right? We're not prescribing something here. Look upon them. Consider them. Be aware of them <clears throat> for our sake, right? That's all they ask. Surprising. And then they go on to talk about what it is that they want from him. Well, before we get to that, let me just stop and say, that surprised me again this week. I don't know if it surprises you. All they wanted God to do was to bring it into his orbit of thought as he was working out his good purposes for his creation. And then they basically tell us why within the prayer itself. This is what the resurrection, I think, had done to them. Just think about it. Just months before, they had encountered the most horrific thing in history. The rejection and the crucifixion of their Lord. They were devastated. And they had discovered in the resurrection <clears throat> that God took this most horrific event in human history and transformed it into his act of redemption. Glorious redemption. And then as they listened to this risen one teach them for 40 days and looked at the scriptures going back through the Old Testament, discovered that this was his intention all along. Read that. It goes, it says, all of this <clears throat> is 
uh, they acted, this, the Gentiles and Herod and Pilate acted to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. They had learned that this creator, when he created it, knew that the risk was that evil would come into his good creation through the sin of humanity, and it happened. And yet he seemed he knew that if that did happen, when that happened, he would act in such a way, in this way, that he would take that evil, that sin, into his very self and deal with it. Surprising way of dealing with it. Nobody expected it. That's what they had discovered that this sovereign Lord of all creation had acted in the most surprising way through this horrific act in order to fulfill his purposes for his good creation. And they're going, you had it in hand all along. This was what you predestined to happen. Obviously, this little thing is part of that. You look to it, therefore, we won't bother about it. We won't be worried about it. It's in your hands. You weave even this into your good story. You weave even these circumstances, harsh as it may seem to us, into your good plans for your good creation. You look upon these things and do with them as you will. That's all they asked of God. Because they had discovered that's who he is. Utterly committed to his will for his creation. And he had proved it. You can deal with my circumstances. Come what may. And then they asked one thing for themselves. They said, look upon these threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness. You look upon them doing what they are threatening us to do and continue to grant us the privilege of being part of the story. Continue to grant us that privilege of testifying to this resurrection. Grant to your servants to continue to speak. You have given us the role to play. We still want to play it. You've given us a task to do. We still want to do it. Grant to us that. Yeah, they've been threatened to us. I don't care what they threaten. I want to be honored by accepting your call in my life at this time. Grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all bones. And as they prayed those things, the Spirit descended, and God said, yes. That's exactly it. That's how you deal with your circumstances. Concerning the threats, you offer them to God. Weave these into your good plan. Concerning ourselves, 
continue to give us the rights and the honor to fulfill the role you have given us in the story. Let us do what you've asked us to do. Let us do what you created us to do. That's how the church overcomes the threats of any society. That's the external. It's worthy of more, but we're going to move on now to the internal stuff. You might want to look up 1 John in this. Uh, this is where we really start preaching. Because the internal forces that John is dealing with uh, are probably more prevalent and more um, difficult for the church than the external ones. Because they're all about us. The internal forces that John is concerned about is the continuing presence of sin within the new humanity. Uh, six verses, chapter, second chapter of John, or third chapter of John, first John, it's four, or I think it's six through ten, four through ten. Uh, he's talking about the practice of sin. Now, again, let me get this right. John is not expecting perfection. He is not talking about occasional sins of God's people. He knows that we will not be perfect in this life, cannot be perfect in this life. Already in the first chapter, he writes, if anyone does sin, knowing that we all shall, if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he is the propitiation for our sins, not only for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world, he says. This cross has brought forgiveness of sin. Know it. So he's not talking about perfection. He's not talking about you and I who mess up, who do sin, continue to sin, and will till the day we die. What he's talking about is the practices of sinning. Three times he mentions that phrase, the practices of sin. Uh, twice he talks about those who keep on sinning. What he is talking about here, I think, is those ingrained habits of life that have sunk down into our character-forming aspects of our being. Those fallen nature kinds of habits that simply will not be interrupted unless we interrupt that will continue to shape who we are and how we live, whether we think about it or not. That's what he's talking about. And John is saying, folks, we have to interrupt those practices. We have to stop practicing sin and learn how to practice righteousness. That's what he's saying. So how do you do that? How does anyone do that? How do we interrupt those practices when we are not even sure what they are, if they are indeed subconscious? Well, go back to the beginning of the chapter. This is the glorious nature of this. John starts with our adoption into the family of God. He says this, See what kind of love the Father has given to us, 
that we should be called children of God. And so we are. He talks again about our, the reality of our adoption into the family of God. We who were made in the image of God as creatures of this creator have been, because of the life, death, and resurrection of the Son, adopted now into his family. We are sons and daughters of the Most High. And we can know it. I think, John says, go back to your tacit knowledge of knowing that you have been born anew, that the spirit of the risen Christ has indeed been given to you, and this spirit speaks to your spirit, as Paul says, crying out, Abba, Father. He says, we can know that, and we go back to that. Now, be sure to not mishear me or mishear John. He's not saying that your feelings about being adopted makes the reality of that adoption true. He's not saying that. We are adopted into God's family because God has done it. God has made it so. God has acted objectively in his world through his son, his life, death, and resurrection, and the gift of his spirit given to those who respond to his gospel and are baptized, united to his son through baptism. Our adoption into the family of God is based on the action of God, not how we feel about it. Because our feelings come and go. The reality remains. But for what John is speaking about here, we go back to that tacit knowledge. There is power in knowing and knowing tacitly, internally, that you are a child of God. You begin there each and every day of your life. Start there. This is who you are. But, John says, you start there, you don't stop there. He goes on to say, beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. Our future is still clouded, right? It has not appeared. We know this, we know that when he appears, Jesus himself, we shall be like him. For we will see him as he is. Think about that. John says, you have been adopted into the family you have the seed of new life planted within you. You are that babe in the arms of your loving father. But you have a destiny. And your destiny is to be a fully mature son and daughter of your father. Your destiny is to share the sonship, the transcendent sonship, Jesus. 
He shares his sonship with you so that you can grow up into him. That's your destiny. That's who you are destined to be. We start as babes, but day by day we are to grow up into maturity. Day by day into the fullness of the stature of the Son of God conformed to him. And he's talking again about the transcendent one who appeared to them after the resurrection. That's your destiny. And John says, if you know that you have been adopted and you know that that is your destiny, it will shape your life. goes on to say, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. If we want to have the Spirit of God unearth these practices that lie deep within us and to interrupt them, we've got to go back to know that we are adopted into the family. We've got to go uh, to look to our future and to know again that we are destined to share the very glory, the transcendent glory of this one. And knowing that we are to live this day in the light of that. That's how you stop practicing sin. That's how you allow the Spirit of God to awaken in you the desire to practice righteousness. That living hope lets you purify life now. That's how it works. Two very broad statements from two very wonderful texts. Again, we deal with the external forces of opposition by deepening our trust in, our knowledge of, and our trust in the sovereign, gracious, and surprising God of creation. We deepen our trust in that this one will not allow his good purposes for his good creation to be unfulfilled. We can entrust him with our circumstances, and we can thank him for the call to have our role within that story that he is telling. That's how we deal with our external circumstances. And those eternal ones, well, we take seriously our adoption into the family and our promised destiny, and we go, make it so, Lord. Enable me to unearth those things that are tripping me up. I want to live as a child of God, destined for full maturity as a son and daughter of yours. Make it so in my life today. Those are two ways of living into the resurrection two ways that the people of God, even this day, must choose to be and to grasp two ways of thinking and living life. 
What say us? What will you do with this? What will I do? What will we do together? Let us pray. Just uh, bring yourself as you are and respond to your Father. Lord, in your mercy, hear our prayer. And would you stand with me? This new life demands new practices, ancient and present. And we come with joy to do that together, to practice a common confession, to come in prayer, seeking God's help to come in confession of sin, that we might be given a fresh start even this day. And then to the table to receive the grace that alone allows us to participate graciously in the story. So let us start by confessing our common faith in the words of the Nicene Creed. We believe in one God, the Father, the Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, of all that is visible and invisible. We believe in one Lord, Jesus Christ, the only Son of God, eternally begotten of the Father, God from God, light from light, true God from true God, begotten, not made, of one being with the Father. Through him all things were made. For us and for our salvation, he came down from heaven, was incarnate from the Holy Spirit and the Virgin Mary, and was made man. For our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate, he suffered death and was buried. On the third day, he rose again in accordance with the scriptures. He ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and his kingdom will have no end. We believe in the Holy Spirit, the Lord, the giver of life, who proceeds from the Father and the Son, who with the Father and the Son is worshiped and glorified, who has spoken through the prophets. We believe in one holy Catholic and apostolic church. We acknowledge one baptism for the forgiveness of sins. We look for the resurrection of the dead and the life of the world to come. And I invite you to be seated and come before the throne of grace. John has pointed us to our hope, the hope found in the love of the great shepherd who lays down his life for us so that we might become children of God. In that knowledge and in that hope, let us turn our hearts and minds to God in the practice of prayer. Let us pray for the whole state of Christ's church in the world. Almighty and ever